Part two of Chapter eight of Chemical Phenomena in Life by Frederick Chopik. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Catalysis and the Enzymes, Part two. Enzymes are as a rule easily soluble in water, in salt solutions, or in glycerin, but yet some are known which are scarcely soluble in water, such as the fat splitting enzymes and that which acts upon malt sugar. They pass slowly through animal membranes. Adsorption phenomena are very marked in enzymes. All are greedily taken up by coal or by flakes of blood fibrin. We prepare enzymes roughly from watery solutions by precipitating with alcohol. Sometimes they may be extracted with glycerin. In a somewhat purer state they are obtained by precipitation with a strong salt solution, particularly when repeatedly precipitated. When they cannot be dissolved in water, the cells are ground down carefully and some toluol is added to the paste. Such toluol preparations show most of the reactions of the endoenzymes. It is true that toluol autolysis is not free from disadvantages. As a rule, the cell paste is effective on a great number of substances. A paste prepared from root tips is able to split up starch and cane sugar, as well as albuminous bodies. It acts on oxidizable substances and splits up fats. The same was found of paste formed from animal liver. Most probably, a large number of different enzymes occur in the narrow space of each cell. It is astonishing to see how all these actions can be exerted at the same time without disturbing each other, and how exactly regulated they are. We have here another argument for the subtle structure which protoplasm must possess, that every substance of the cell is kept in its proper place, and cannot mix with the others. It is an important fact that enzymes of a certain kind are not formed by the organism under all conditions. That was shown distinctly in experiments on molds. The common mold, Penicillium glaucum, when cultivated on starchy material, produces in abundance an enzyme which acts on starch, the so-called amylase, or diastase. If the fungus is kept on starch-free food, it has been found that it does not contain any diastatic enzyme. The latter is only immediately and abundantly produced when starch is added to the culture medium. Penicillium even produces an enzyme which acts on wood substance, as I once showed. But such an enzyme is only produced if the fungus is cultivated on wood and not upon other substance. We must conclude that the formation of enzymes in the organism underlies some regulations, and that it is a purposive process in life. Now comes the question, what enzymes may be formed of? Very little has hitherto been discovered about the origin of enzymes. Only a few hints are given by a series of experimental results. In a number of cases, it has been stated that extracts from cells do not contain ready and effective enzymes, but when they are treated with very diluted acetic acid or other milder chemical agents, they begin to show distinct working on fat or albuminous matter or on starch. Therefore, the supposition was arrived at that the fresh cell extract contained the natural mother substance of these enzymes, and that this mother substance was able to furnish the enzyme itself by artificial transformation. The original substances were called proenzymes or zymogens. Studies on the pancreatic ferment in animal intestines have shown that the fresh pancreatic juice does not act on protein bodies, but when it is brought together with the intestinal liquid, it begins to act most energetically on proteins. The intestinal liquid entirely loses its activating effect when boiled. The activating substance must consequently be destroyed by heat, quite as enzymes are. 
Other experiments showed that the activating substance of intestinal sap much resembles a true enzyme, and it may be called an enzyme-activating enzyme, or kinase. Enzyme effects are assisted also by many other substances. We know the great influence which is exercised on the protein-splitting enzyme of the stomach secretion by hydrochloric acid or another acid in sufficient concentration. Many of the enzymes of plant cells are favorably influenced in their action by acids quite in the same way. The pancreatic enzyme, on the other hand, shows a contrary behavior. It is supported by diluted alkaline solutions. Very remarkable is the activating effect on the fat-splitting enzyme of the pancreatic gland exerted by the organic acids of bile, the glycocholic and taurocholic acid. Such activating effects are extremely widely spread in the part which enzymes play in the life process. One sees how these enzyme effects may be regulated, strengthened, and weakened as the effects are required. Many chemical substances hinder enzyme reaction in a most characteristic manner. Stronger acids or stronger alkalis generally diminish the enzyme effects, as also alcohol, formaldehyde, cyanide of potassium, aromatic substances, and many inorganic substances, such as the salts of heavy metals, iodine, sulfurous acid, etc. Such a paralyzing influence is not only exercised by these substances, but the living cell is able to produce special substances, which are destroyed by heat, which are effective in very small quantities, and which paralyze enzyme reactions. We have spoken of these already as the anti-enzymes. Anti-enzymes are doubtless produced in the normal metabolism of plants and animals. I found a very interesting case of an anti-enzyme in root tips after geotropic stimulation. This anti-enzyme acts on oxidizing enzymes and is able to reduce their effect considerably. Quite distinct is the specific nature of anti-enzymes. The anti-enzyme of geotropically stimulated roots of maize does not alter the anti-enzyme effects of oxidizing enzymes from the bean or sunflower. On the other hand, the anti-enzyme of the bean root acts on the enzyme of other leguminous plants only. The specific nature of anti-enzymes is met with in a similar way in the animal anti-enzymes, which are produced in the blood when enzymes are injected into the venous system. As we have already mentioned, anti-enzymes are formed under such conditions, which paralyze only the enzyme which was injected and no other. Just as a high temperature has a great influence upon the velocity of reactions catalyzed by substances of inanimate nature, the enzyme reactions are likewise considerably accelerated when the temperature is raised. Van't Hoff's rule seems to be followed even in enzymes. The reaction velocity is doubled or trebled when the temperature is raised by 10 degrees. But it is true that this rule is only found for certain intervals of temperature. Besides its accelerating effect on the velocity of enzyme reaction, a higher temperature strongly influences the velocity of the disintegration of the enzyme. The higher the temperature, the more unstable are enzymes. At a temperature of over 60 degrees, enzymes are rapidly decomposed. Many become immediately inactive when they are heated up to 63 to 65 degrees Celsius. We therefore understand that there probably exists a certain temperature at which the enzyme work is best done, namely, one at which the accelerating effect of the temperature is strong enough to finish the reaction very quickly, and where the enzyme-destroying effect of the temperature is not so strong as to paralyze the temperature effect on the velocity of the reaction. This reaction can be shown graphically by two curves. The line AB 
shows the acceleration of the enzyme reaction by the rising temperature. We take it for granted that this influence is directly proportional to the temperature. The curve CD shows the destruction of the enzyme by the temperature rising. This influence, as far as we know, is not simply proportional to the temperature. Suppose the quantity of the enzyme at zero is 100, and the quantity at 70 degrees is zero. We have to draw the curve CD. So we recognize that the optimum of the effect lies between 50 and 60 degrees. Only about 55% is active, but the strong acceleration of the reaction velocity neutralizes this diminution. At 60 degrees, about 40% of the enzyme is active. Consequently, this minus is to be subtracted from the ordinate, and the resulting curve of the enzyme effect slightly approaches the axis of abscissus. At a higher temperature, the quantity of the active enzyme decreases rapidly, and so does the resulting effect, which becomes zero at 70 degrees. Such superposition of two curves causes the culmination of the resulting curve in E. In practice, it is not advisable to use too high a temperature for enzyme reactions. A medium temperature is in most cases the best. We shall not be surprised to see that this so-called optimum of enzyme reactions coincides with the temperature which is most favorable for the life process. F. Frost Blackman, in a series of most interesting papers, showed that the dependence of different life processes on the temperature obeys a similar rule to that of enzyme reactions. Whenever we find an optimum of a certain vital function at a certain temperature, we must think of the crossing of two kinds of influences. One of these influences is the accelerating effect of the temperature on chemical reactions, the other the destructive effect of higher temperature on the active substances of living cells. We only have to add that most of these active substances belong to the enzymes. It is important that the equilibrium of enzyme reactions is not altered by temperature. Van Hoff has explained this fact. Enzyme reactions cause neither a great production nor a great consumption of heat. All reactions of such character, of a comparatively small caloric change, are not affected in their equilibrium by temperature. Therefore, the constant of equilibrium in enzyme reactions is not dependent on temperature. Bright sunlight is very harmful for enzymes, and rays of light destroy them very quickly. Especially the ultraviolet rays act particularly injuriously on all enzymes hitherto examined. Very interesting relations exist between the concentration of the enzyme solution and the enzyme effect. We have related that many catalytic reactions follow the law of monomolecular reactions. So, for example, the destruction of hydrogen peroxide by platinum sol, or the splitting up of cane sugar by diluted sulfuric acid, are reactions of the first order. In every moment of the reaction, its velocity is directly proportional to the quantity of the substance yet unchanged, and directly proportional to the concentration of the acid. Quite similar ratios were found in enzyme chemistry. The cane sugar-splitting enzyme of yeast, called invertase, and amylase, or the starch-dissolving agent in seeds, act in the same way. Between certain extreme limits, the effect is directly proportional to the concentration of the enzyme. So it is possible to calculate the quantity of invertase or of amylase in a solution when a standard solution of the same enzyme is used. Pepsin of the stomach showed a different result. In Prague in 1885, Schutz discovered that the amount of protein digested in a certain time is not proportional to the quantity of the enzyme itself, 
but proportional to the square root of the quantity of the enzyme. This rule has often been confirmed, but it was only a couple of years ago that Arrhenius of Stockholm explained this remarkable law. If we consider that the determination of the enzyme effects is made in the first stage of the enzyme action, we may assume that the quantity of the transformed albumin is very small in comparison with the quantity of the albumin not yet decomposed. We can therefore suppose that at the beginning of the reaction the quantity yet unaltered is constant. If K is the constant of the reaction velocity, X the transformed albumin, capital M the not yet decomposed albumin, then the equation can be written as K equals X times capital M, or capital M equals K times 1 over X times parentheses capital I and parentheses, where the term parentheses capital I and parentheses is equal to the reaction velocity. According to the rule of Schutz, the ratio of the transformed albumin X to the time wanted for the transformation is X equals K sub 1 times the square root of T, or X squared equals K sub 1 squared times T. If we differentiate, we find 2X times DX equals K sub 1 squared times DT, or DX over DT equals K sub 1 squared over 2 times I over X. As long as capital M is proportional to the reaction velocity I, Schutz's rule must therefore be valid. Another question is whether even enzyme reactions are of the first order, that is, are monomolecular reactions or not. We see that the question is of great importance. In the case of the enzyme reaction being really of the first order, we know that only one substance in its concentration is altered during the reaction, and that cannot be any other than the substance on which the enzyme is acting. Consequently, the enzyme concentration itself remains constant. In this way, we obtain the proof for the identity of enzyme reactions and catalytic reactions. As early as 1890, excellent papers were published by O'Sullivan and Thompson on the reaction between cane sugar and invertase. These authors came to the conclusion that the reaction follows the law of monomolecular reactions. This theory was by no means generally accepted. French and German scientists of great weight denied that the law of the reaction is simply the law of mass effect, and empiric formulas were calculated which sufficiently agreed with the course of the reaction observed. It is to Hudson that we owe the proof that O'Sullivan and his collaborator were quite right. The able American chemists found that the chief mistakes in such investigations are caused by the circumstance that grape sugar continually changes its action on polarized light when just split off from cane sugar. This property of glucose is called mutarotation. Hudson very cleverly avoided this source of error by adding some alkali to the solution before the polarimetric determination was made. Thus, the state of equilibrium is at once reached in the rotation and the determination of glucose can be made without any difficulty and with full certainty. In this way, it was clearly shown that the inversion of cane sugar by invertase is just as much a monomolecular reaction as the parallel reaction of cane sugar inversion by means of acid. Investigations were made on fat-splitting enzymes, which showed the same law, but the results of others were different. But another enzyme very clearly follows the law mentioned above. That is the catalase, which splits up water into hydrogen and oxygen. 
Finally, the tyrosine oxidizing enzyme of plant cells was found to follow the law of monomolecular reactions. Even if we do not yet possess clear knowledge about other important enzyme reactions, these results are most remarkable. Hope is given us that some more enzyme reactions are quite identical in their mechanism with catalytic monomolecular reactions. Since we have seen that Schutz's rule can be simply explained and is by no means peculiar to enzyme reactions, we believe that it is very probable that enzymes are nothing else but organic catalytic substances without any peculiar property. Complications, it is true, are frequently produced by the colloidal properties of enzymes, which cause the great instability of the enzymes. In most cases, the quantity of the enzyme is diminished at the end of the reaction because of the destruction of a certain amount of enzyme in other reactions which occur besides the main reaction. It is easily understood that this must lead to important differences from the law of monomolecular reactions. Finally, we have to touch on the question of the specific character of the different enzymes. A priori, we do not know whether one and the same enzyme cannot catalyze different reactions, but many reasons can be given for the supposition that by far the greater number of the enzymes act upon only one substance. Although most living cells show different enzyme effects, we find a certain variety in their combinations, and never find two or more enzyme effects inseparably connected in any case. So, in germinating seeds, we very often observe catalytic effects both on cane sugar and on malt sugar. In other cases, these two effects are strictly limited to two different cell species. In yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae acts very effectively on cane sugar, but not on malt sugar, whilst Saccharomyces marxianus only acts on malt sugar. When we prepare a watery extract from both species of yeast, we can easily convince ourselves that even there only one of the two enzyme effects is exerted. By Marxianus, only the splitting of maltose, by cerevisiae, of saccharose. We cannot doubt that these two enzymes are different substances. Many more difficulties arise when the enzymes cannot be separated from the cells and the enzyme effects are watched only in the paste of ground-down cells. There, it is often impossible to say to what number of enzymes all these effects should be attributed. All in all, one feels at present inclined to indulge in the opinion that each single effect corresponds to one certain enzyme. We are justified in doing so, since many enzyme preparations have in the course of time proved to be mixtures of different enzymes. It was well known that preparations of starch-attacking enzymes gave in most cases a blue reaction with guaiacum resin. Then amylases have been met with which did not show this guaiacum reaction. Finally, extracts were obtained from plants which only gave the guaiacum reaction, but did not act upon starch. So the conviction was arrived at that the blue reaction with guaiacum and the starch decomposing effect belong to different enzymes, which, it is true, very often occur together. End of Part 2 of Catalysis and the Enzymes